If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Psalm 84? Psalm 84. We are, as you probably know, we're in a a season of 21 days of prayer as a church. You might be new. This might be the first you've heard of it. But we are spending the evenings praying together. A lot of us are praying and fasting, calling out to God together. And one of the things we're doing on the Sundays to match that, really, is to look at a few different modes or models or forms of prayer that you find in the Bible. And last week, if you were here, you'll have seen Steve, who was teaching through Acts chapter 4, and really talking about quite a specific way of praying that we've been using a lot in the evening prayer meetings, which is that of corporate intercessory prayer, which is where we all stand together, raise our voices, and call out to God for him to do something powerful in our, in our day and to address issues on the earth and so on. That's a kind of corporate intercessory mode of prayer, That's, and we've been doing a lot of it. But that's not the only kind of prayer in the Bible, right? There's actually quite a lot of different kinds of prayer in the Bible. So one of the things we wanted to do was to look at a number of different ways in which God's people pray in Scripture. And a completely different kind of prayer that you find in in the Bible is in Psalm 84. It's almost at the opposite end of the spectrum to the raise your voices together and cry out for God to do something sort of prayer. And this is a very different kind of prayer you find in Psalm 84. I still think the principles that we learned about last week help us. I personally found the, that point Steve made where he said, in, in prayer you begin with desire and then you have to build in discipline and you end up with delight. I found that really helpful and you may have as well. I think that still applies to all prayer, but this is a quite a different kind of prayer we're going to read in a moment in Psalm 84. And as we grow as disciples, it's actually really important that we learn to talk to God in different ways. That's actually what happens in any relationship, if you think about it. As you grow in your relationship with that person, the ways in which you learn to communicate with them expand. Prayer is just talking to God, isn't it? So as you begin to talk to God, you have to learn how to talk to God in different ways because your conversation is not all of the same form. An obvious example that occurs to me is... This is true in in marriage. So when I first met my wife, Rachel, she and I were working together. uh, It was a kids' club planning meeting. We were working for a kids' club, and that's when we met. Right? I walk into a room, she's there, we don't know each other, and you're making decisions about who's, what the timings of this program for this weekend are going to be. Who's going to do what? Who's going to run that game? And then they're going to stand there, and then the kids will come in here, and then we're going to sing that song, and then whatever it is. And so you, you meet in planning mode. I later discovered that at the end of that meeting, the first time she met me, she left the room and looked at me. I mean, I just finished Cambridge University. I was not... I'd be amazed you to know that I wasn't that down with the kids then. (laughs) I know I obviously am now, as we all know, but at the time, not really. And she literally, she left, running this kids' club for estate kids, and she just said to somebody else of me, they are going to eat him alive. That's what she said. That was her first ever comment about the person she's now married to. So that was a little bit withering. Um, our relationship's kind of taken a better turn since then. But it was a planning meet. We learned to speak to one another in planning mode, right? A few months later, we're running an alpha course table, an introduction to Christianity course, and we are talking not in planning mode there. We get, we're beginning to talk in really evangelism mode or pastoral mode. We are trying to help teenagers come and find Jesus and talk to him about their objections and questions and all the things they want to raise and so on. And so we then have we move from planning mode conversation to evangelism mode conversation. It's a different kind of speech. A few months after that, we begin going for walks together and pretending we're not dating. 
and you learn a different mode of conversation. And then you may learn another mode. And actually, as your relationship deepens, you learn quite a few different ways of having a conversation with someone, don't you? And it would be very weird if we were to continue in our marriage operating the same conversational style we learnt when we first met in a planning meeting. Right? So we're walking along together and I say, okay, so I thought it about maybe at 3.05, we'll stand over by that tree and I'll kiss you. Is that okay? Would you agree with that? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah. That would just be odd. You'd think that's dysfunctional. You're not supposed to treat every conversation the same way. And what happens is you deepen in a relationship with someone, you begin to talk to them not only as a means of achieving something, but just in order to enjoy that person's presence. Right? That's another form of conversation, isn't it? And that's what happens, that's what we're going to read in Psalm 84. This conversation, really, this person speaking to God is not really trying to get God to do that much. He's simply trying to enjoy the fact that God is there. And mature relationships need a lot of different kinds of conversation. That's, my wife and I still, you know, we do have, we spend more time planning our diary now than we ever did when we were dating. You have to learn how to talk in that mode. You have, we spend time discipling our children. We spend time talking to other people in our home and helping them grow in God or whatever it might be. We spend time just making each other laugh. We spend time apologizing to one another. We spend time just enjoying each other's company. Lots of different modes of conversation, and it's just the same with God. One of them is simply enjoying the presence of the other person. Let's read Psalm 84, beginning at verse 1. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed for a day in your courts. It's better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O oh Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of God. This is a prayer about how beautiful the presence of God is. And it's captured the imaginations of Jews and Christians for 30 centuries. That's a long track record. But it raises a very important question for us about the relationship between prayer and the presence of God. Does, I suspect there'll be people in this room who will read it in one of two really quite different ways. Does it mean your presence is wonderful and I wish I could be there? Or does it mean your presence is wonderful and I'm so glad I'm here? Right? Which is it? I think there'll be people in this room who, when they've heard that psalm before, will read it like this. Oh, Lord, how lovely your presence is and how I long to be there. Even sparrows and swallows get to be there. Please let me come too. I'd do anything. I'd even be a doorkeeper in your house. 
I'd much rather do that than do what I'm doing now, digging a trench or plowing a field or whatever. Right? So I think some of us read it that way. Others of us read it in a different way. We'd say, oh, Lord, how lovely is your presence, which I am in right now. What a privilege that you let me be here, and even sparrows and swallows as well. I am so blessed to be here, even as a doorkeeper in your house. Do you see those two are quite different, aren't they? One of them is the presence of God for the psalmist is here, and one of them is it's elsewhere. And I need to want to get there, or I want to enjoy it as it's here, and that, which is right. I think the answer comes in the bit of the psalm that most of us don't realize is part of the psalm, um, which is at the beginning of verse 1. And this bit of the scriptural text, a lot of us read these and probably assume that they're just added in by the people who made the Bibles, but they're not. They're actually part of the Hebrew text. They're part of what the inspired word of God for us. And it says at the very start of the psalm, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And that verse actually has three clues in it that the the presence of God is here interpretation is right, and the presence of God is somewhere else interpretation is wrong. Okay, three clues in there. One of them is that it says to the choir master, which is to say that if you read 1 Chronicles, which obviously I know all of us have memorized, um, but if you read 1 Chronicles, you'll find that the choir served in the courts of the temple. So this is written to a group of people whose job it is to lead the people of God in temple worship where God lives. So we know that its audience is intended to be people who are already in the presence of God. It also says, according to the Gittith, which is, your, if you've got a footnote in your Bible, it might say something like, this is a musical or liturgical term. But again, it's a way of saying this is designed for corporate liturgy and praise in the people of God in the temple. And the big clue is the third one, which says the psalm is written by the sons of Korah. And again, if you read 1 Chronicles, you'll find that the sons of Korah are gatekeepers in the Jerusalem temple. You find that in 1 Chronicles 26. In other words, this is a song written about how lovely it is to be a gatekeeper in the house of God, written by gatekeepers in the house of God. Yeah? So this is a song celebrating the fact of God's presence, not pining for it and hoping we could one day get there. This psalm isn't saying, oh, I wish I could just only be a doorkeeper in your temple. This is saying, oh God, what a privilege to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. A day here doing what I do is better than centuries anywhere else. That's what's happening, right? And that makes quite a big difference to the way that you apply that psalm to yourself now. Because in those days, the place where the dynamic presence of God was known and felt was in the temple, in Jerusalem. That big stone building is spectacular and impressive. That was God's address. That's where God lived. That's where heaven touched earth. In the temple. But when Jesus died on the cross, the veil separating the presence of God from everybody else was torn in half. And the presence of God went spilling out into the world such that anybody who came to faith in Jesus could approach the presence of God by the Spirit wherever they were. And such that local communities of believers, churches just like this, became God's address, the place where God lived, the place where heaven meets earth. So a few weeks after Jesus died, you find people at the Luke saying of Pentecost, the presence of God fell on the church and filled the entire house where they were sitting. Acts chapter 2, verse 2. From that point on, the apostles start saying things like, don't you know you're God's temple? God's spirit lives in you. Or don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit you have from God? The place where God dwells is you, individually and corporately. 
You find 1 Peter saying, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built together to be a house, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. In other words, the temple of God today, the equivalent of what the psalmist in our text is talking about, is here. Right here, the presence of God in the people of God, in the church of God. His presence isn't somewhere else such that you and I have to pine to go and find it. His presence is here by his spirit. So God is wherever you are. We are his temple. He dwells with us, and he's with us all the time. And that means that when I read verse 4 in this psalm, I know it's talking about me. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And I'm going, that's me. That's you. I'm not talking about someone else. I'm not saying, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to be somebody who gets to dwell in your house and sing your praise all the time? I'm saying, that is actually what I do. That's my privilege, Lord. I am so blessed. Not they are so blessed. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways designed. That's me. That's you. That's the people of God. It's not someone else. Well, it is someone else, but it's just not only them. It's you as well. It's us. But that should raise a question for us, and I suspect for some of us it does, which is, okay, so... The psalmist is celebrating being in the presence of God, and you're saying that I am always in the presence of God because God is wherever I am. Yes. So is there anything I need to do to experience his presence? And if there isn't, there's not really much point in praying to experience God's presence either, is there? Some of you are thinking that. Some of you weren't thinking that, and you now are. You know, I've done that preacher thing where you create a problem people didn't have at all. But that's actually what happens sometimes. I think we read it and we go, oh... So if God is wherever I am, God's on the bus, I go to the toilet, God is there, I do anything, God is there, then there's no real point in praying to experience his presence. Which means that this entire message is a bit of a stupid idea. <laughs> okay, so we have to think, so what, is there a difference between somebody being present and them being experienced as present? And I think definitely there is. I think there are all kinds of situations that you and I go through in normal life in which we would realize, if we stop for a moment to think, that somebody can, it's regularly true that somebody is present and we don't experience their presence at all. And what the psalmist is doing in this psalm is helping himself experience the reality that is already true of him, namely that God is there. Because God can be there and you don't know it. In fact, that's exactly what happens to Jacob, the person who becomes Israel, becomes the foundation of the Jewish people, Jacob has this dream at Bethel. He falls asleep, sees the ladder reaching to heaven, and wakes up in the morning and says, surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't even know it. I think there's people like that all the time. Surely God was there, and I didn't realize until now. And prayer, in that sense, for the psalmist, is a means of experiencing what is already true. Experiencing the presence of God, not just simply acknowledging that it's probably true intellectually. And so I want to give a few examples, a few illustrations to help us think about the, relate, the, the connection or the difference between being present and being experienced as present. The first is very silly and is nothing at all like God, but it makes me laugh. And it's a story about me making a fool of myself at work. So generally you can share stories like that. I was a management consultant when I first left university and I was about 23, 24. I was working up in Shaftesbury Avenue in one of those, some of you work in a context like this, one of those sort of, they give you a lot of money, but they make you work ridiculous hours, and you're there all day and night, and working on very tight deadlines. And I was in that sort of work environment with 
uh, a contemporary of mine, a friend of mine called Tom, he and I are working fairly, fairly late. Not, people are beginning to go home. It's about eight in the evening or something. And I just, there's a table football downstairs in what we call the fun room, right? Rock and roll. That's the kind of work environment we have. There is a room for fun that you can go to if you're feeling tired of your project. And so I rang him and said, I just need a brain break, Tom. Can we go and play table football downstairs? And so he goes, oh, yeah, 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 that'd be great. You go to see. So as I walk, he's on floor three, I'm on floor one, and we're going down to the basement. So as I walk out, the, the brilliant idea occurs to me. I know, Tom's going to be walking down these stairs thinking that I'm already downstairs, so I'll hide in the lift shaft and then frighten him, right? Because I love that kind of thing. It's just great fun. So I hide in the lift shaft, and the door swings, sure enough. Footsteps come down the stairs, and I think, here comes Tom. He's going to get the fright of his life. And as the footsteps round the corner, bang on cue, I leap out and go, Rah! Now, what I didn't know was that Tom had actually taken the lift and that the person walking down the stairs was a principal in my company, as in one of the senior members of my company, whose name was Tim Seddon, who was so angry. I, I probably, if I stop and think about it, if I exclude my wife, which I think is different, she, that's probably the angriest I've ever made another human being. Because I leapt out at age 23, leap out and frighten the living daylights out of this guy. And he was like, don't ever do that again. I never worked with him again. Three months later, I left the company. It wasn't directly caused by that, but it might as well have been. And Tom, meanwhile, of course, just going down the lift behind me. Oh, the irony. So that was, in that moment, you immediately sense the difference between being present and being experienced as present. And there is a very big difference in that situation, right? If you are standing, hiding, you might well be there and the other guy has no, no, no way of knowing you are, and the second you jump out, you are experienced as present, and the gap between the two is very large. It is possible to be present and not be recognized, which is why going boo on people can be fun. God is not like that, but you get the idea of the difference between presence and the experience of it. Here's a more positive example. My son Zeke is 11, and we have a, he's a wonderful boy. We have a great relationship. I, Imagine, though, four different contexts in which he and I are present with one another. Context one is that Zeke is, in, I'm in the kitchen doing some work or cooking or whatever, and he is sort of buzzing around the kitchen in his own world. And he's just sort of thinking, he's got autism, and he quite often goes into his own little world for a while and just flaps and thinks and talks to himself. And he's in his world, and I'm there, but he's not really experiencing me as present that much. He, if he stopped him and got him to focus and said, is dad here? He'd go, oh, yeah, dad's here. But there, there's no really meaningful engagement at all at that point. That's level one. Level two, he and I are playing football together. Right? We're out in the decking garden. We're just kicking the ball around, shooting, whatever. And we are communicating back and forth. It's fun. He shoots. I say, whatever. I encourage. There's more meaningful presence at stage two than stage one. Stage three, he and I are sitting on the sofa. I've got my arm around him, and we're watching Match of the Day. It's one of our favorite things to do. And there is an intimacy building there that is greater than is on the football pitch, which is greater than it is in the kitchen. Stage four, every now and then, out of nowhere, he's a very affectionate boy, who will just suddenly say something like, I love you, Dad, and throw his arms around me. And at that point, presence is being experienced in a depth and richness that none of the other three get anywhere near. Now, if you see that kind of, you track that, I think there is a sense in which I am equally present in all four situations. There is another sense in which his experience of my presence is totally different at level four to level one. I think it's the same with God. I think you and I have lots, live lots of our lives buzzing around with God there and not really noticing. 
And then sometimes we'll be doing something with him, and sometimes we'll be sitting closely, spending time with him, and sometimes we will be overwhelmed with his love for us. And all four include his presence, but there is an experience of that presence at level four that is not there at level one. There's another illustration. On your way here today, you walk through water. Right? About 1% of the atmosphere you walked through on your way to this building today, or drove through, whatever, was water. But you didn't experience it, right? You didn't feel wet, especially. You were just walking through the air, the atmosphere, and 1% of it's water, but there's no experience, no feeling of it. It's not tangible to you. But tonight, the air is going to cool to such an extent that that water that's in the air will suddenly become very tangible and visible. It'll be dew, right? You'll wake up tomorrow morning. If you put your socks on and walked out your front door, you would get your feet wet tomorrow morning because the, the ta- that which is intangible will have become tangible, f- real, feelable. Even though the water was present, you will suddenly begin to experience it as present. And then as the day gets warmer, you'll probably stop noticing the water and then so on the cycle will continue. And when I was a new Christian, I heard a preacher explain the presence of God and the power of prayer and praise using that analogy. And I found it very helpful. He said, you've got to make sure that you remember the place that praise and prayer play in cooling your spirit, your soul, to be aware of and experience that which is already there, namely the presence of God. You, prayer slows you down. Play, prayer does for your soul what the cooling night temperature does for the water, which is to make it physical, make it tangible, make it real for us. Uh, then suddenly we are aware of the reality of God's presence, which was there all along, but suddenly I'm experiencing and living in the good of it. One more illustration. I, uh, my car broke a couple of years ago, I rang the AA, we're members, the, I don't know where they are, up, you know, the AA office is I don't know, somewhere in Birmingham or Scotland, it doesn't really matter where it is, but it's a long way from my home, and they then call a mechanic who's going to come out and help fix my car. And it turns out that the, the ring on the doorbell comes within minutes of me making this call. I'm thinking, that's odd, why on earth, where, where's this? I mean, who, where has this person come from? And this just happened to be here, I open the door, and it's my neighbour. There's a guy who lives four doors down, who I knew was a mechanic, but I didn't know he worked for the AA, and I didn't know he was licensed to do my car. So he's literally within shouting distance of me, but he has turned up because I've rung Sunderland or wherever, and they've rung him, and now here he is to fix my car. Again, I felt like Jacob at Bethel. Surely a mechanic is in this place, and I didn't even know it. <laughs> right? Now, he was present, but it was only when I called on him to be who he said he was that I benefited from his expertise in my life. Right? He was there, but it wouldn't have done me any good if I hadn't known who he was and called on him to act on my behalf in the way that he promised he would. Right? That's what we used to do in the old days with the yellow pages. Do you remember? You just, some of us old enough to remember the yellow pages. You turn to this big yellow book, open up a page, and then go, right. And you'd ring somebody up, and you would effectively say, I am trusting your word. I am trusting that you are who you claim to be. In this case, a mechanic or a plumber or whatever it is. And I need you. Oh, I need you. And when you call on them to be who they say they are, they release their help and ministry into your life. And these days, we do the same with the white pages. Right? We open our Bibles. We open the white pages. And they fall open in the middle to Psalm 84 or whatever it is. And we say, oh, Lord God. 
You claim to be in your word a sun and a shield. I am now calling on you to be who you say you are so that the power of who that claim is will be released to serve my life and to bring your presence usefully, meaningfully, and experientially into my life. I think that's the way that prayer functions in experiencing the presence of God. So before we conclude, I just want to talk for a moment even about how we do it. Okay, that, I think that's why, I think that's what the psalmist's doing here. And that's why prayer is so critical in experiencing the presence of God, even though God is always present. But I do just want to raise quickly the question, how you do that? How do we do what the psalmist says, dwelling in his house and ever singing his praise? How do you do that in normal life? And we could talk about that for hours, but let me just give you a principle and an example. A principle of how you enjoy the presence of God in normal life and an example of how to do it. First, the principle. This is a one, one of my favorite quotes on prayer from Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's where I read it. He may have got it from someone else. He says, always respond to every impulse to pray. Or I say, you sometimes hear it said negatively. Never resist the slightest impulse to pray. And what that means, it's kind of an obvious idea in a way, but it is surprisingly effective. And when I came across this, it's made a big difference to my prayer life, which is that the Holy Spirit is quite often giving you a little nudge as you walk around and do life. You're driving along, whatever it is, and then you just, from somewhere, the Spirit just drops a thought into your mind, and you pray now. And normally, what you do is you just kind of go, oh, no, I'll do that later. I'll get manana, I'll get on to it later. At the moment, I'm doing this. And there's something very liberating and powerful about learning just to instantly respond to that impulse. That's what Lloyd-Jones is saying. The Spirit will prompt you all the time, because the Spirit lives in you and wants to draw you to Jesus all the time. He will be making that suggestion to all of us in our daily lives regularly. Many times a day, I expect. And one of the things I've learned from this quote is how quickly and easily you can respond to it and how much more easy the habit becomes when you start obeying it. So I'm driving along the car, and I'm listening to the radio, podcast, whatever, and then I just, the Spirit suddenly goes, I think you should pray now. And I just almost instantly, I'll mute that. I'll come back to it just in a second or two. I'll just press pause or whatever it is I'm doing. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that you're present. Amen. And then carry on, right? It could literally be as short as that. I'm teaching my son Samuel to pray at the moment. He's... This is a picture of my family. I keep mentioning them, by the way. So you'll be able to introduce them. Rachel, top right. Um, me. And then Anna is on the right. And my son, Zeke, who's playing football with me, is the tall one with the sort of darker hair. And then Sam's the blonde one at the front who isn't a dog. And um, I'm teaching Sam to pray at the moment. And it's really sweet because he, you're sort of trying to do what you, you say. Okay, Sam, should we pray tonight? And Sam will go, okay, okay. Lord... Oh, Dad, I've forgotten what to say. I, oh, what do I say? I said, don't worry, Sam, just wait. He goes, Lord, thank you for loving us. Amen. And the amen is longer than the prayer. It's just great. And the Bible says I've got to learn from children how to approach God. Not just, I also need to teach them how to pray, but I need to learn from them. And at that, something that teaches me is that there is something very easy and childlike and beautiful about simply saying, Lord, thank you for loving us. Amen. Thank you that you're here. Amen. May I go and may I experience now the reality of your goodness and presence with me. Amen. And then carry on with whatever it was I was doing. That never resists the smallest impulse to pray. That's the principle. But this psalm also gives us a wonderful example. And if you want to memorize a one line, one verse prayer that will help you experience the presence of God wherever you are, you could do a lot worse than Psalm 84 verse 11. 
For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord God is a sun. That's what the Bible says. The Lord God is a sun. If you're like me, January in London, you begin to fantasize in normal life about being able to teleport to St. Lucia. Does that happen to anybody? Or somewhere like that. Does that happen to you? You just think, I know that the reality of teleportation is going to have to wait until the new creation. Praise God for that day. But for now, I just sometimes dream that I'm going there because I'm so excited by the idea of being in a place where there is just sun. And where the sun might permeate through me and warm my bones and darken my skin and brighten my eyes and just make me feel healthier. Give me a bit of vitamin. What's the vitamin? D. E. You see, it's very difficult to tell the difference between D and E from up here, but I know it's one of the two. Um, but I just, vitamin D pulsing through me, and I just love the idea of feeling that bit more alive because I'm basking in the warmth and brightness and light of this huge radiant being. And the psalmist says, that's what God is like. That's what the presence of God is like. I can do that anywhere I am, anytime, day or night. I can say, Lord, the Lord God is a sun. And I want to stand before him, and Lord, I want to be enlightened. I want to be enriched. I want to be brightened up. I want to be warmed through by the light of your glorious goodness. And I can do that wherever I am. You, O Lord, are a sun. The Lord God is a shield. He's my fortress. He's my defense. He's the one who stands between me and the bad guy. He's my rampart. He's the place I can go and hide. No matter whether the the world is falling apart, I can hide behind him and find protection. He bestows favor and honor. He never withholds anything good from people who love him. And blessed is the one who trusts in him. And I can take those truths in prayer to my father and say, Lord, this is who you say you are. And I want to call on you to be who you claim to be, that the blessing of your presence might be released in my life. So we're going to conclude this meeting by calling on God to be who he said he is, and specifically by basking in the light of his presence through receiving two gifts that he promised never to withhold from those who love him. Right? Jesus gave his church a lot of gifts to sustain us and make us aware of his presence. The person of the Holy Spirit is by far the most important. But he gave us a number of other gifts to keep drawing us back into God's presence. Right? The word of God, the power of scripture, the power of being in a community like this. Prayer, songs, many gifts. But on the night he died, he said, Here, this is the thing I want to give you that will continually make me present to you. Whenever you do it, I want to give you this bread because it is my body broken for you. I'm going to give you this cup because it is my blood shed for you. And as you take these gifts, you will experience my presence and reality with you. I want you to know that I'm there. I want you to be able to eat it, drink it, smell it, taste it. And as you do, to experience reality of God living among you. And so what we're going to do as we conclude is we're going to just, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to ask the band to come up and just lead us in the beginning of a song which just begins to declare some of the truths of who Christ is for us and then we're going to go to the table receive the bread and the wine or the juice we use here and then go back into a song so that we finish this reflection on the presence of God by eating, drinking, singing, praying and hearing the word of God to us Okay. so I wonder if the bank could come out and we're just going to, could you stand and we could, I'm just going to lead us in prayer and then from there we'll begin to sing and then go to the table in a moment Father we thank you so much for the presence of God 
made real to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and passed into our lives on a daily basis through the person of your spirit and experienced corporately through the hearing of your word, through the singing of songs filled with biblical truth, through prayer, and specifically now, Lord, through the the elements, the, the communion, the Lord's Supper. Thank you for the presence of God given to us. Thank you. We are not trusting in a God who is a long way off. We are saying God is here, and even if I didn't know it, And Lord, we pray that as we take the bread and the juice now, you would be experienced by us. We would encounter you again in all of your glorious, beautiful presence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.